Amen. May that be our continual prayer, even as we open together now the Word of God, a, a difficult uh, portion of Scripture, a dark portion of Scripture. But even, even in this, may we think together, praise together, hallelujah, God most high. Let's, let's pray and ask for our Lord's help. Father, we give you thanks for your abiding mercy upon your people. We pray now for your Spirit to come and give to us the grace of, of hearing and believing and understanding the very word of life to us. And even in a passage where death seems to dominate, we pray that even here we will find the very giver of life. We ask that you will give us understanding, help us to see our Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory, even in the midst of, or perhaps especially in the midst of overwhelming darkness. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. As you take your seat, will you turn with me to Judges chapter 19? It's been, I guess, about a year ago when, probably longer ago than that, was beginning to sketch out and plan for a series in the book of Judges. And as I usually do, I'll read through the book and I'll sort of sketch out a general outline and, and get the contours of a book and begin to evaluate resources and commentaries and all that, and chapter 19 gave me pause, just full disclosure. You know, chapter 19 makes me think, is this really the book I want to preach? Because I can't skip it. I know once I'm, I'm started, I'm committed, right? You wouldn't let me, and I wouldn't be allowed to just go from 17, 18 to 20 and 21, and of course, 20 and 21 would make no sense apart from chapter 19. I was at Shepherd's Conference out in California, I don't know, it was probably a decade ago, give or take, and Dr. Al Mohler was preaching that particular, one particular evening, and he was preaching the, the text and acts about Apollos and his giftedness in preaching, and he made the comment at one time, he said, you know, there's not a preacher in this room worth his salt who doesn't want to be up here right now, who wants to just elbow me out of the way and said, I'll finish it, I'll take it from here. Well, I don't think he was talking about Judges 19 when he said that. I don't think that would hold true. Uh, even those of you in this room who aspire to, to preach the gospel, this is not necessarily the text that you want to, to wrestle with. And, and I think it's okay for us to you know, chuckle at that reality, acknowledge that reality, but I, I do so not to make light of the subject matter before us. In fact, quite the opposite. And I want to express two important, I think, very important pastoral concerns before I even dive into the text. Um, number one, the subject matter of, of chapter 19 is, deals with sexual assault, violent sexual assault. And we need, as a congregation, as, as, a, as a community of faith, to be sensitive to the fact that there are those probably among us for whom this particular text has an extra difficulty. For all of us, hopefully, it's a difficult text. Uh, but for some... It may be particularly difficult and traumatic. And I want to acknowledge that, both women and men who have been victims of sexual assault. I want to know that, I want you to know that uh, even as I approach the text, I've, I've had that sensitivity in mind, studying and preparing to preach the text. But secondly, another pastoral concern. It, it is an obvious thing among us. We have lots of young children. That's a blessing. 
That's intentional, to have them here with us. We're not dismissing them to another room, even though we have very difficult adult content here. But I want you to know as parents that I'm not going to dwell upon, we're going to read the text, and the, and the, the Word of God is, is, is explicit, uh, in detailed in some ways here. Uh, but we're, I'm not going to belabor those things. Uh, I will tell you, that the Hebrew is more explicit than our English Bibles, and, and I'm not going to necessarily flesh all those things out. But there's a second thing, just, just in that same area in terms of young children. This is a reminder to you as, as parents, I hope, that the discipline of reading the preaching passage ahead of time with your families is a wonderful opportunity for you as a parent to be able to address some of these issues in the comfort and safety of your own living room or your own dinner table before the public declaration of the Word of God. It's a way to prepare yourselves in in multiple ways for the Word of God. So with that said, those are some uh, pastoral concerns I wanted to mention before we even start. And I used an illustration all the way back in Judges chapter 5 that I I want to repeat. I think it, it, it will help us to think about this. There in chapter 5, where Deborah is singing a song about the death, the violent death of Sisera at the hands of Jael. And I I use this illustration. We used to have a a device in our, connected to our TV, called a ClearPlay DVD player. And you could download filters, you could put in just any ordinary rented DVD or movie, and it would automatically filter certain content. So let's say in in the area of of violence, you you could set it to, to... edit out. And usually it was just a fraction of a second. So when a dwarf swung a battle axe and right before it pierced the skull of an orc, it might cut away. So you're not seeing the actual violence. Or William Wallace thrusting a sword through his enemy. You'd see him swing, but you wouldn't actually see the blood and guts. Well, chapter 19 doesn't do that. The Lord, in his wisdom, the Spirit of God is the author, ultimately, working through a human author, And he doesn't, as it were, cut the camera away at just the last minute. He doesn't give us the luxury of looking away. We're confronted with a brutal reality that we're forced, in word form, to see. And the more I've studied the chapter, I'll confess that there's a part of me that wishes I could look away. And I know that you want to look away. But... The author of the book of Judges doesn't allow us to do that. The Spirit of God and his wisdom doesn't allow us to do that. And we claim the promise of God by faith that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for us. Amen? A couple other just quick reminders. Judges, this portion, as we began kind of closing the Judges proper, looking at the individual 12 Judges and moving on here to verses or chapters 17 to 21, these are not to be understood as chronological. These events actually take place very, very early in the cycle of the Judges. The book of Judges covers roughly 300 to 350 year period of time. This would have occurred very early in that uh, sequence of of time. And the fact that this happens in Benjamin, within the land of Benjamin, and, and the previous section we saw in chapters Uh, 17 and 18, that happens in in Ephraim, shows us this isn't some remote, isolated event. This literally, geographically and spiritually, is in the very heart of Israel. 
So Judges 19, ultimately, is about the depth of depravity within Israel. God warned his people before they ever crossed over the Jordan River, do not be like your neighbors. Do not be like the pagans, the Canaanites, who will live among you. Drive them out, tear down their altars, do not worship their gods, do not pick up their practices, do not give your sons to them in marriage, do not take their daughters for your sons in marriage. And yet, chapter 19 gives to us a vivid graphic account of the fact that the people of God did not listen. They did not hear. They did not obey. And now we have to ponder the tragic consequences of disobedience to God. The chapter is written in a manner that the Holy Spirit intends us, I think, to use the, the device of shock. It's supposed to shock us. It's supposed to shock us and force us to confront the sin of Sodom everywhere we find it, including, and most painfully, within us. Wherever we see the sins of Sodom, they are to be confronted and exposed and mortified. And the book concludes. Look ahead, I'll read the text in a moment. Look, the last three words, consider it, take counsel, and speak out. It concludes with that admonition to God's people. Consider it, take counsel, and speak up. Let's read together Judges 19, and, and I'll point out after I've read it, there are deliberate similarities here between Genesis 19 and Judges 19. Genesis 19 is the account of the destruction of Sodom. So we have here a deliberate indication that the people of Israel have become Sodom. In fact, in many ways, worse than Sodom. Here now, this is the word of God. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, and his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with great joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he rose early in the morning to depart. And And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please, spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jabus, that is, Jerusalem, He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. 
When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come, and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjamites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going, and where do you come from? And he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to the house of the Lord. But no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it wasn't light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine laying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak out. May the Lord bless the reading of his word, every word. As we as I made notice or made note to begin with, there are a number of deliberate parallels between this account and what we see in Genesis chapter 19, the account of Sodom. And just very briefly, think about some of those things. There were two male visitors who arrived in a strange land and are needing to spend the night, and they're welcomed into 
a local home. Both cities were deemed as being unsafe for a stranger to spend the night outside in a common area. The men of the city in both cases surrounded the house. Exact same word-for-word language that we see in Genesis 19. And again, in the very same language, the men call on the owner of the house to bring out the male guests so that they may, quote, know him. Homosexual violent lust figures prominently in both narratives. In both cases, the owner goes out, calls these men brothers, and pleads with them not to do such a wicked thing. In both cases, the owner of the house offers two women to the mob instead. Lot offers his own two virgin daughters, and here, the owner of the house offers his own virgin daughter plus the Levite's concubine. But Judges 19 is even worse than Genesis 19. Because not only are the deeds intentionally portrayed to us as the same, equally vile, but the men of Israel ought to have known better. They have the oracles of God. They have the law of God. They had been explicitly instructed not to do these very things. So they sinned not only against nature, which was the sin of Sodom, but they also sinned against explicit, special revelation from God. Let's note, I'm going to make four observations about the depravity. This is what the chapter is ultimately about, is is the nature of the depravity, the extent of the depravity, the depth of it, the breadth of the depravity that we find in Israel. And again, I titled the sermon, Sodom in the Promised Land. That's his point. That's the narrator's really wanting to press that issue home. To the Israelites, you think you're something? I mean, God told you through Moses in Deuteronomy before you crossed over. He said it wasn't because you were more numerous. It wasn't because you were a special people. It wasn't because you had anything inherently, intrinsically good in you that I chose you. It was because I loved you. Because I had set my favor upon you according to my own grace. That's it. You think you're something special. You're not. And the sin of Sodom has now taken residence in your own land. And worse than that, it's in your own hearts. So let's notice in the first place, this, what, we, what we see and, and learn from chapter 19 about the nature of depravity is we find that it's, depravity was displayed in ordinary men. See, sometimes we have this idea that, that sin, that depravity, infects certain classes or ranks or groups of people more than others. Chapter 19 confronts us with the fact that every man was doing what he thought was right in his own eyes. Depravity is no respecter of persons. It is not confined to a particular class of people, a a race of people, a group of people. Sin doesn't work that way. Notice in the text, we have several main characters, none of whom are named, by the way. The only name that we find in any of this narrative is that we find it in chapter 20. We'll see this next week. And only because the narrator wants us to know it's the grandson of Aaron. Phineas. But depravity is no respecter of persons. The Levite here, we, 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 the story opens well enough in terms of the, this hospitality they find in Bethlehem and Judah with the concubine's wife, but there's, there's, there's something that happens even before that. There's, there's a conflict of, something, of some kind that happens with this Levite and his concubine. A concubine was a, was a sort of second-class wife, a second wife, a third wife, 
I mean, frankly, she was nothing other than a permanent escort for him, a plaything for him. And there is, the text tells us, his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house. Now, you need to know, there, there is some discussion and even debate among scholars, what's, what's happening here in the Hebrew text? Was it the fact that his, the Hebrew wife, or that his concubine was unfaithful to him? Some of the translations was that she played the harlot with him, and then she fled to her father's house. Some of the older texts tell us that she was angry with him and fled to her father's house. I think, to me, one of the most compelling interpretations, and it's not a majority view, but I think it's one of the most compelling interpretations, is that it wasn't that she played the harlot with him. He played her the harlot. He pimped her. Which, to me, ties together more of the loose ends in the end. I can't be certain of that. That seems to make most sense from the manuscript itself and from the internal evidence. But whatever it was, there was a breach in the relationship. She goes to her father's house, and the text tells her he intended to go and speak kindly to her. It's a Hebrew idiom. He went to go woo her, to sweet-talk her into returning to him. Again, if he had prostituted her, that makes more sense. He's going to try to win her favor again. He's a Levite, saints. This is one who's supposed to be a teacher in Israel. He's supposed to be the standard barrier from God's word of what is right and wrong amongst God's people. His job is to lead God's people in true worship. And we see, first of all, in his own character, a depravity. In fact, by the end of the story, I hate him more than anyone. I despise him more than any, even, even the mob of men. We see this Ephraimite. We're introduced to what he just is called the old man. And at first, when we're first introduced to him, he's the only one who speaks to them in the town square. And we have a favorable view of him at first until the men hurl themselves against his door. And he goes out and offers his own daughter. It was unthinkable to me. As a father of three daughters, as a grandfather of three precious young girls, this is unimaginable to me. But isn't that the point? The point is to show us that sin is unimaginable, and it will always take you farther than you ever thought you could go. The men of the city of Gibeah, the whole rank and file of ordinary common folk in Gibeah were depraved and wicked. Depravity is no respecter of persons. We see the entire tribe of Benjamin, particularly over the next, uh, next week, we'll see this. The tribe of Benjamin is shown in such a way that ordinary men, every man, is viewed as being infected by indwelling sin. We, we, can, we can lure ourselves into thinking that there are certain people out there somewhere who are really wicked and vile, but not so much us. Not so much the, the sweet little lady who lives down the street. Not so much that favorite uncle that you see at Thanksgiving, but he's lost and perishing. And we, we can delude ourselves into thinking that, that, that there are real sinners and that are sort of, well, you know, I, theologically I'll, I'll acknowledge them as sinners, but not really. See, our thinking can be twisted. But the author of Judges intentionally does not share any names of any of the characters in chapter 19. 
And, and, and what happens is, by looking at the literary devices he uses, the way he writes, we begin to able, be able to discern what is the message. Because there's not, a clear, there's not a clear verse or two in the text that says, well, this is exactly what God thinks of all this. God's name isn't even mentioned. So we look at his, the literary tools, the literary devices that he uses, and one of those is that he anonymizes all of the characters. Why does he do that? Well, it does two things. To anonymize the characters, that's two things. When you fail to give them a name, first of all, you've dehumanized them. And I'll, and I'll say more about that in a few moments. But you dehumanize them. But the second thing you do is you not so subtly make the point that these nameless men and women represent everyone. See, if, if, if the Levite has a name, we're tempted to think, well, he was unique. There was something special, a particular heinous about this particular Levite. God doesn't want us to think that way. The Spirit of God wants us to look at this Levite and say, this is every Levite. To look at this Ephraimite, this sojourner, well, this is everyone. To see the men, the the finite group of men, however many there were, we don't know, that hurled themselves against the door of the house that night and, and beat on the door and demanded that they send the man out to them. We're, we're, we're meant to understand them as, these are every man. This is every man in Gibeah. The namelessness of the characters universalizes their actions. Daniel Block makes this observation. This is helpful. He says, the twofold significance, or, or, sorry, first, an anonymity expresses what is declared editorially in the refrain at the end. In these days, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This means that the Levite represents every Levite, the concubine, every woman. The father-in-law, every host. The old man residing in Bethel, every outsider in a Benjaminite town. Because everyone did as he saw fit, every host was capable of committing the atrocities of the Benjaminites. Every guest could be mistreated. Every woman was a potential victim of rape, murder, and dismemberment. Ironically, just as the Levite would dismember his concubines, so the nation would gather as one man in the next chapter to dismember itself. Anonymity is a deliberate literary device adopted to reflect reflect the universality of Israel's canonization. The sin of Sodom had infected everyone, without exception. And and is this not the biblical doctrine of total depravity? we, We confess this. We confess this at least nominally. It's in our even in our confession of faith. In in chapter six, dealing with the fall of man. In paragraph two, in our second London Confession, our first parents, by this sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and the body. We confess that, but do we believe it? I mean, do we really look at ourselves as wholly defiled? and needing transforming grace in every part of our body and soul? Do do we recognize that the the grace of the gospel needs to touch every part of me? My thinking, my affections, my will, my priorities, everything. By nature, and and we're enculturated to think that, well, I'm I'm basically good, and and if I feel it in my heart, it must be true and good, right? Right? At a fundamental, basic level, 
Friends, we have to reject that. And we have to say, this is true, not of people out there, but me, of you. I need the grace of God to transform everything in me, not just certain aspects. This brings me to my second observation regarding the depravity on display in this new Sodom that has come to Israel. And it's this. Not only is depravity displayed in every ordinary man, but it's displayed in ordinary lawlessness before it is displayed in gross immorality. Depravity is displayed in ordinary lawlessness. Jerry Bridges referred to this as as acceptable sins. See, before we are shocked by the brutality and the supreme wickedness of the men of Gibeah, we ought to have been shocked by their ordinary lawlessness. Now, what do I mean by that? There's two examples, or two, I think two pieces of evidence that show this. Number one, God's name is not mentioned anywhere in this chapter. Not even on the lips of the Levite. Nowhere do we see the Levite offering up a prayer to Yahweh, asking for his help, asking for his protection even acknowledging him in any way, shape, or form. No character acknowledges Yahweh in this chapter. There was an ordinary neglect of duty long before we see the shocking details. But not only that, a second piece of evidence is the lack of hospitality and the lack of love for neighbor. There's a lack of hospitality, lack of love for neighbor. See, the Levite, as, as they're traveling along, you know, the, the, the whole exchange with the father-in-law is, is, is somewhat comical, and some of you can relate, trying to, to get out of the orbit of Grandma's house as you've been there for, for a holiday and trying to leave, and there's always one more thing. But the father-in-law is actually set as a, as a sort of foil against the inhospitable Gibeons. Here's the father-in-law who's a picture of, I mean, exemplary in ancient Near Eastern hospitality. Someone came to your home. You bring them in. You feed them. You feed their animals. You wash their feet. You give them bread and wine. And you, and you give them an opportunity to enjoy your home. And what's interesting is that as the Levite and his male servant and his concubine finally say, Levi says, it's enough. You know, Pop... I love you, we got to go. But now it's late in the day. And they can't make it all the way back to his home. So the first city they come across is Jebus, which will eventually become Jerusalem, but right now it's still occupied by the Jebusites, by pagans. And so the, the servant says, why don't we spend the night here? And he says, oh, no, 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 we're not spending the night here. We will not spend the night among foreigners. We're going to go to our own people. We will go and see if we can get to Gibeah or to Ramah. Gibeah is the first place they arrive. They go into the city. They park themselves in the middle of the town square. And no one, no one invites them to stay. This is contrary to all ancient Near Eastern customs. They were left in the midst of the city. No one offered to take them in. Not one man from Gibeah offered to host them for the evening. And, and then magnifying the, the social depravity 
that's, that's taken root in Gibeah, to magnify that, the Levite is approached not by a, a man from Gibeah, but by a sojourner who ha- just happens to be staying in Gibeah, but he's actually from the same place that our Levite is, from the hill country of Ephraim. And then to magnify things even more is that the Levite testifies that I have fodder for my animals, I have my own food and wine, I have everything that I need, I'm just looking for a bed. I'm not looking for somebody to sort of roll out the red carpet, so to speak, and put me up and provide all my needs and to give me charity. I'm just looking for a place to stay. And he could find none of that. But we need to understand, this is not merely a breach of social etiquette. This is not just a lapse of social graces where societies become coarse and and those kinds of things. This was actually lawlessness. God required the people of Israel to show hospitality to one another. That was a requirement in the law, and particularly and explicitly. The law required Israelites to show hospitality to four groups of people. The widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, and the Levite. Well, they're batting 500 here. Here's a Levite and a sojourner, and he's left alone in the public square with no one offering him care. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 29, And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, and the sojourner, the orphan, the widow, and and who are within your gates, shall come and eat and be satisfied, in order that Yahweh your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. One commentator observes, he says, The situation that's described here in verse 15 They turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah, and he went in and sat down in the open square of the city. No one took them into his house to spend the night. And one commentator says that situation described there would have been shocking anywhere in the ancient Near East. See, it would have been shocking among the Jebusites. It would have been shocking among the pagans for this to have happened. But... It is especially shocking in Israel. The social disintegration has infected the very heart of the community. People refuse to open their doors to strangers passing through. It makes no difference that these travelers are their own countrymen. See, why do we not find all sin to cause us sorrow? Why is it the case that that not all sin grieves us? Now, By saying that, hear me clearly, I'm not making a moral equivalent between the depravity on display at the end of chapter 19 and being inhospitable. I'm not making a moral equivalent. I'm not saying all sin is the same, that all sin is equally heinous. I'm not saying that at all. But let's don't don't fall in the other ditch and say that, well, minor sins are no problem. That ordinary sins, common sins, ordinary lawlessness is not something we have to be particularly concerned about. See, we can, we can err both sides, can't we? We can flatten everything out, say all sin is the same, doesn't matter. That's wrong. But we can also say, well, the little sins don't matter. Many in law enforcement, for example, will tell you that when so-called petty crimes, you know, vandalism, graffiti, pickpocketing, petty theft, when those are ignored, what happens? Inevitably, bigger crime is going to follow. I mean, you can write it down and mark it as, as, a, as a law. That's going to happen. 
And so it is with our own sin, isn't it? If we don't take seriously the ordinary lawlessness that we find within us, if we don't take seriously all of God's commands, if we don't seek the Spirit's help in mortifying every manner of sin, isn't it always the case that we find our sin escalating? Isn't that true? It's true at a community level, but it's also true at an inward, individual level, isn't it? Depravity is displayed in ordinary lawlessness before it's displayed in the most heinous of sins. I mean, I can promise you, you, you can talk, go, go talk to, interview 10 adulterers and ask them, is this, is this the first sin? Is this where it started? No, it didn't start there. This brings me now to my third observation. Depravity grows when it is known and tolerated openly. Depravity grows when it is known openly and tolerated. The perversions and the wickedness of the men of Gibeah were an open secret. This was not strange. This wasn't news. This wasn't an aberration. Even a sojourner, even someone who wasn't from there, who didn't live there, who didn't grow up there, knows you don't spend the night here in the open square. I mean, look at verse 20. This old man comes, and he, has, he interviews, he kind of goes back and forth with the, with the Levite. You know, where are you going? Where are you from? By the way, the Levite's not honest with his answer. Read carefully. He's not honest. There's nothing in the narrative that said he was going to the house of the Lord. He's going home with his concubine. But he's embellishing things as he goes. He's even probably overstating his own material supplies. And, and we'll see next week in Judges 20 when he gives his testimony before the Benjaminites. And before all the men of Israel, he twists the narrative to make himself look innocent. And we know he is far from an innocent man. But in verse 20, this old man comes and says, Peace be to you, I will care for all your needs. Shalom. I will care for all of your wants, only do not spend the night in the square. Now why? This was a gated city. This was a gated city in Israel. There should be no threat from outsiders. Why can you not spend the night in the open square? You ought to be able to throw out a bedroll, enjoy the stars, enjoy the night, and complete peace. This man knew what everyone in Gibeah knew. The danger wasn't outside. It was inside. Sodom had come to the promised land. And, and chapter 20 ends up recounting for us how when, when charges are brought formally and the men, of, Gib, or men, the men of, of Benjamin are asked, hand over, basically extradite, use our modern terminology, extradite these criminals for prosecution. Benjamin responded, we will not. They were comfortable with sin. Isn't that been a, a theme that we've seen throughout the book of Judges? a growing comfort and complacency with sin, even the most vile. Now, I don't think I need to expand this point significantly with respect to contemporary application, do I? I We live in a culture that increasingly celebrates all kinds of abominations in the eyes of God. calls good evil and evil good. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning in in the garden when, when Satan 
tempts Adam and Eve, and, and he says, if you eat of this tree, God knows this, you will have the knowledge of good and evil. Satan is not promising to them a factual understanding of what is good or what is evil. He's offering to them the autonomy of choosing for themselves, of declaring in and of their own will what is good and what is evil. Well, that's the refrain, isn't it, throughout the book of Judges. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. They were a law unto themselves. We see this in, in, in the whole ab- abortion abomination, where women are murdering their own children in the womb. You know, what, the, the parallel to, to, to the, the events of Gibeah are striking. What ought to be the safest place inside this fortified place ought to be the safest place for a baby. And for many of the children in our nation, it's the most unsafe place for them to be. We have a whole month in our culture devoted to the pride of sexual perversions of all kinds. And especially, prominently, homosexuality. But it isn't ending there, and, and don't ever let someone accuse you of, of, of a slippery slope fallacy. It is not a slippery slope. It's the proverbial snowball headed you know where. Just, just, this, just this week, this is a headline from the Huffington Post, a mainstream, you know, liberal propaganda media outlet. Here's the headline. Why queers should, be, should care about sex offenders. The secondary headline is the same methods historically used by the government to imprison and pathologize homosexuality and gender variation are being used today to justify the extreme marginalization, lifetime institutionalization, and oppression of, listen to the euphemism, of people who have violated sex laws. See, there's a normalization underfoot right in front of us. Depravity always grows when it is wide out in the open and tolerated and celebrated. You see, the concern of Judges 19 is, is not what the pagans are doing. That isn't the concern. All the scene happens within the covenant people of Israel, within the promised land. The concern of chapter 19 is to demonstrate that Sodom has come to the promised land. Sodom has come to the church. Listen to Dale Ralph Davis. He says, each man was doing whatever was right in his own eyes, who in this context is each man. He is Israelite man, covenant man. It is precisely those who have been called to be a people for Yahweh's own possession who are refusing to be subject to his covenant law. They will not have this God to rule over them. Is this not a word for the church? Are there not many in our own pews who would voice outrage over the scandal of Gibeah? People who find religion congenial, morality proper, charity commendable, and God, if he is not sovereign, unobjectionable, and yet share a stubborn and wicked heart with the sexual perverts of Gibeah. Bottom has come to the promised land. Nor is this the last time that Sodom has come to the promised land. Paul had to write to the church at Corinth. In in chapter 5 of of Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church, he had to write to them and admonish them, rebuke them sharply 
because they had a man in their midst committing sexual immorality that even the pagans would not have tolerated. He had his father's wife. It was incest. And, and Paul says he, he's heard of this report. He says, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, and with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Listen to what he says. Your boasting is not good. Do you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see what Paul says? He uses the illustration of leaven. He says, This has to be removed from among you because if it's left and it's openly tolerated and even boasted in, as as, as they were doing in Corinth, this will infect the whole thing. Depravity doesn't remain contained. It has to be killed or it will spread. Now, the grace of the gospel requires us to embrace those who who have been cleansed of their sin by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of the gospel requires, requires us to, to, uh, to embrace those who are being enabled by the Spirit of God to repent and forsake sin. But that gospel grace, that willingness to forgive sin should never, ever be confused with permission to tolerate, normalize, affirm, or promote what God calls sin. And we are warned here, I mean, graphically, that if you permit such things, it will grow. If if sin is openly tolerated, it's going to get worse. So again, don't fall for someone accusing you of the slippery slope fallacy. This is a biblical reality. And when sin is openly tolerated and even celebrated, it's going to get worse. Like untreated cancer, moral depravity will metastasize. Like yeast, Paul says. It's going to spread and infect the whole lump. Sin is always growing and spreading if it's not killed. John Owen famously said, be killing sin or, you know, the rest, it will be killing you. Depravity was displayed in ordinary men. We've seen that. Depravity is, is displayed in ordinary lawlessness before it's displayed in gross sin. But also, depravity grows when known and tolerated. I'm going to make one more brief observation. And it's, it's the worst of them. Depravity is ultimately dehumanizing. Sin and depravity is ultimately dehumanizing. We could even say unhumanizing. And we see the bitter effects of this. The very last statement about mankind before the fall. Think about this. When you go back and look at Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you see the creation narrative, and you see the, the description of Adam and Eve in their state of innocency. Without, without opening your Bible there, do you remember what was the very last thing, the very last commentary from God about Adam and Eve before their fall? They were naked and they were unashamed. The very last thing 
that the scriptures have to say about Adam and Eve before their fall. Now, that, that word naked is, is, more, is, is certainly physical, but it's more than that. It encompasses their, their whole humanity. It was unashamed to stand before one another or before God. Do you know then what was the very first effect of their fallen humanity? They sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness. Sin ultimately infects every part of our person, including our sexuality. You think about this. Why didn't Adam and Eve sew fig leaves to cover their ears? I mean, after all, they listened to the voice of the serpent. That would make sense. Why didn't they cover their eyes? The fruit was, was desirable to the eyes. Why didn't they cover their mouths? That's, that's what they used to, to eat the fruit. Or their hands. That's what they took to grasp the fruit. They didn't cover that. The text tells us they made loincloths. They covered their sexuality. And as we go and we look at Romans 1, and for the sake of time, I won't turn there today, but we find in Romans 1 is a descending dehumanization of mankind. Because they would not honor God as God, therefore, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which ought not to be done. And sometimes we get that text inverted, and we, we think things like, well, because of homosexuality and sexual perversion, God is going to judge this land. We're getting cause and effect confused. The sexual perversions are the judgment. Three times there, Paul says, since, for this reason, because. It's because you did not honor God as God. You refused to give thanks to him. You refused to to worship him instead of the creature. And what happens You've been dehumanized. What separates us? Think about this. What separates you from your favorite dog? Other than he walks on four legs and you only get to walk on two. It's because you have the ability to reason. Part of, the, the, of your being an image bearer is that you have the ability to contemplate your own existence. To think about right and wrong. Your dog has never once been burdened with the thought, is, this, is it right to take the other dog's bone? Not once has your dog ever stopped and think to himself, why do I always lose my bone? Not once has your dog ever thought, I wonder what will happen after I'm gone. As a human being, we have the capacity to reason. And what God says in Romans chapter 1, the thing that God takes away, the thing that he removes, is the ability to think rationally. You turn to Ephesians, look at Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, and how often Paul uses phrases like the darkness of the Gentile mind. I mean, look around what's happening in our culture, and you ever think, that doesn't make any sense. You're right, it doesn't. Because God has removed his hand of grace, that there are people doing what ought not to be done. Not only sexually, but it makes no sense whatsoever, even from a, from a standpoint of natural law, from a standpoint of anthropology, it makes no sense for a woman to murder her own baby. And yet women will stand up with a straight face and try to make a reasoned, rational argument that makes no sense whatsoever. You can go home on your own and read Daniel 4. This is the account of this great and proud king, Nebuchadnezzar. You know the story. 
Nebuchadnezzar one night walking upon the wall and he's surveying all that he, and he took credit for it. In his pride, he exalted himself. And what happened to him? Just as the vision had foretold, just as the dream had foretold, God drove him out away from human beings and he lived as a beast. The dew covered him. He ate grass like a beast. His hair grew long like feathers. His nails like claws. And listen to Nebuchadnezzar's own testimony about what what happened when he was restored. You find this in verse 34 of Daniel 4. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honors him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar experienced the act of being dehumanized in a very tangible, literal way. But I submit to you, the dehumanization that we find in chapter 19 is a direct consequence of depravity and sin that had gone unchecked. And now you have a father who could stay, got to a, a mass of a mob vicious men and say, here's my daughter. Do with her whatever you want. For a man to say, even to his, about his second wife, his concubine, seize her and throw her to the wolves. And maybe being too harsh on wolves. But to throw her into that environment. This dehumanization is demonstrated most sharply in the callousness of men to just throw the women out to their own destruction. It's unthinkable. The callousness with which this so-called husband treats her ought to shock us. The callousness of this Levite or this Ephraimite father with his own daughter And, and, the, and the, the, the narrative concludes with, consider it, take counsel, and speak out. You know, we, we live in, in a culture where we're seeing this, aren't we? Who, who suffers the most when this depravity has taken root? It's our sisters. It's our wives. Their daughters, who are in many places right this very day, threatened if they go into a restroom, a changing room, a locker room. And that is nothing short of an abject dehumanization of the women in our midst. And worst of all, this is at the hand of a Levite. One who is charged with teaching the word of God and teaching the people how to worship. In the closing two verses, and I said, and I, and I meant it, I'm not going to, to dwell upon these things, but I want you to know something about the language that's here. As he brings the concubine back to his house, and he takes a knife and he divides her limb by limb. 
This is the same language that's used throughout the Old Testament with respect to sacrificial offerings that would be cut up by a priest and offered as a sacrifice. It's the same verbs used here. He sees her as nothing more than an animal. Now, I have a theory. I can't prove this. But I think part of what's, what he's doing, you think, what, what, what would, I mean, this makes no sense. Even if you assume a barbarity, why, why cut her into pieces and send her, you know, to the other tribes? I think what he's saying is she's been offered as a human sacrifice. And, and, the, and the Israelites would have recognized that. But what he leaves out is that he's the one who sacrificed her. And, and I think about what we observed in our culture, even in the midst of churches who have tolerated, put up with sexual abuse in their midst, and they've covered it up, they've hidden it from the light, and pastors have done it. And it's shameful. It ought to grieve us. It ought to anger us. There should be no place in the promised land for such things. And even the testimony of the Israelites, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Now let's look very briefly, but wonderfully, on the remedy for our depravity. I appreciate your patience. I know this is going long. After all the judges that we've studied, all the, the wickedness that we have observed, and we've seen this, this descending nature of depravity, and we've observed all kinds of enemies of Israel, from the Midianites, to the Philistines, and everything in between. But we also discovered, and chapter 19 makes this unescapably clear, the biggest enemy was inside all along. The biggest enemy wasn't outside. The biggest enemy is inside. And the enemy's largest threat was sin that dwelt within every man, woman, and child. As it turned out, Sodom is found in the heart of every man. Sodom is found in the heart of every man. The author of Judges has repeatedly hinted that something profound, something necessary is missing in Israel. There's no king. And, and, and he's not trying to communicate to us that any old king will do. I think it's part of the, the, the overall polemic of the book of Judges is against Benjamin and against Saul, for example, as a king. And instead promoting Judah. And David, but even David, even a godly king like David, could not fix the problem that most beset Israel. The problem was sin. The enemy of sin has to be killed, and only a perfect judge, only a perfect redeemer, who was not hindered by his own sin, could finally rescue the people of Israel. And this is why the Lord testified generations after the time of the judges, that, that a new covenant was necessary, that, that a, a new Redeemer would come. In, in Jeremiah 31, 31, the Lord promises that in those times, in those days to come, I will bring about a new covenant in which the law is written on your heart. You will have no longer a heart of stone, but what? A heart of flesh. Every man will know the Lord. One man will not have to say to his neighbor, Know the Lord. Because he will know him by the Spirit of God indwelling him. One day a new covenant would come 
And this, the writer of Hebrews begins to unpack for us, and just lay open to us all the glories of this new covenant. There was nothing that was going to fix the problem in Israel. No amount of external restraint was going to solve the real issue. No king, earthly king, no only human king would have been sufficient. And this is why in Hebrews chapter 8, I'm going to give you just a sample platter from this section of Hebrews 8 through 10, laying out before you the glory of Christ as the prophet, priest, and king that we desperately have needed. In Hebrews 8, verse 6, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. If Israel could have found righteousness in that original covenant, God would have helped them to do that. But by God's design, that covenant was not designed to make them righteous. It was designed to make them unaware or make them aware of their unrighteousness, of the sin that remained. Then in Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 1, for since the law, he's using the word law here as, as, a, as a summary of all the Mosaic statutes. Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away this is the deficiency in the Old Covenant. There was no way to remove their sin. They could temporarily atone for it, cover it, but they could not take away the sin or the guilt thereof. Then the Apostle goes on to describe how Jesus Christ is that one perfect sacrifice to whom all the other shadowy signs and figures pointed. And he says this in Hebrews 10.19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The only cure, the only remedy, the only antidote for Sodom in the promised land is a perfect king, priest, and prophet. And I proclaim to you today that Jesus Christ is, in fact, that perfect king. He is that perfect prophet. He is that perfect priest. And he has come, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so as you consider chapter 19, and, and I hope you will, I hope you will, will be not like the man that, that James warned us about who sees his reflection in the mirror and goes home and, and forgets what he sees, but rather we would be doers of the word rather than hearers only of it. And, and, and the doing of Judges 19 is consider, take counsel, and speak out. Do, do you see evidence of Sodom in you? In that, in that moment, do you look to the Old Covenant, 
to remedy that? Do you look to try to, to sort of self-reformation? Do you look to trying to, to clean yourself up and offer sacrifices to the Lord and hopefully he will be pleased with your remediation, your remodel? Or do you confess, I can't do that. I need the cleansing, all-sufficient blood of Christ to pardon me and cleanse me. And also, I need the imputation of all of his perfection, of all of his righteousness, of all of the benefits that he purchased for me in his death and burial and resurrection. That's the hope of the gospel, saints, is that when we are confronted in, in, in horrific, vivid terms, with our own sin, how do we respond to that? Do we respond according to the old covenant that wasn't, any, that wasn't designed to do anything about your sin? Or do you respond by looking to the grace of Jesus Christ revealed in the new covenant, by whose blood you have been cleansed, washed, pardoned, and sealed the day of his return? All who call upon the Lord Jesus will be saved. All who call upon him will be pardoned from the penalty of sin. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will, will be cleansed from the defilement of sin, will be rescued from its power over you in this present age. And you will have a promise placed upon you, sealed upon you with the very blood of Christ, that one day you will be delivered even from the very presence of that sin. We believe that and cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe in a complete rescue provided by the only king who could do it, King Jesus, and rest in the promise, the sure promise of his return. Let's pray together. Father, our God, we, we give you thanks for your word, even, even when your word comes upon us hard, heavy, dark. I praise you that in your wisdom that you have written to us in various ways in your word. Sometimes you've written to us with, with sweet words, encouraging words. And other times you come to us with all of the subtlety of a sledgehammer and confront us with the reality of depravity in our world depravity that exists remains even in our own hearts. Lord, will you first of all help us to subdue our pride that, that will hinder us from even considering that these sins could be found in us also? Father, will you help us by, by your Spirit to, to believe that surely Robert Murray McShane was, was correct that the seed of every known human sin exists in every human heart, including us. Or will you subdue the pride in us that, that wants to convince ourselves that I could never? Help us to believe that apart from your restraining grace, every man would be just as it was not only in Gibeah, not only in Sodom, but also in the days of Noah, when every man was doing right in his own eyes, and every man, his thoughts and intentions of his heart were only evil all the time. 
Lord, will you help us not to look to our own wisdom, our own strength, our own virtues, but to the grace of Christ alone. In his name that we ask these things. Amen.